Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Tell it to him, leave me alone. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. You can call him at home. Hello and welcome to Torts Illustrated, Episode 9. I'm your host, Marie. Wait, disclaimer time. I am a lawyer. I am not your lawyer. This show is for fun, and we here on Torts Illustrated do not dispense legal advice. If you want legal advice, hire a lawyer. If you've done something bad enough, the government might even give you one. Okay, now welcome to Torts Illustrated, where we discuss all things weird and wacky in the law, from old England to today. Thanks for coming back after last week's wild ride through the First Amendment rights of horrible churches. Since that just wasn't enough for your dear host here, I present to you... Phelps NATO 2, the second one. In other words, another case about Westboro frickin' Baptist Church. That's right, folks. I got more for you, as well as a special look into another one of our favorite cults, Scientology. So if I go missing after this episode, well, you know what happened. Hopefully none of my listeners will rat me out, and luckily there are probably about 50 of you, so my odds are okay. But before we get into the boss battle of our cults and churches twofer, let's finish up with Westboro. As we talked about last week, Westboro Baptist is largely made up of the Phelps family, many of whom are lawyers and very experienced in bringing constitutional challenges to the laws that could potentially affect their mission to inform us all that we're going straight to hell and that God hates us. But perhaps not surprisingly, the Phelps family and their church often end up in court as defendants in tort suits as well. Now, for our non-lawyer listeners, a tort is a civil wrong that causes someone else to suffer loss or harm, resulting in legal liability for the person who commits the tortious act, who we call a tortfeasor. I love these words, if only because I can't help but picturing tortoises suing each other. So if that makes this all more fun, feel free to join me in picturing litigious tortoises getting their day in court. Torts is one of the major areas first-year law students cover as part of their basis in the law, and it contains all manner of sins, not just things that are illegal under law. It's more about injuries. So we've got obvious injuries like assault and battery, but it can also cover emotional and psychological hurt. And a tort can be intentional or unintentional. Battery, for example, is an intentional tort. You purposefully raise your hand and you hit somebody else, and so forth. But negligence is a tort too, meaning you weren't as careful as you should be in a situation and somebody got hurt. A simple example might be, if I store bleach in a Coke bottle in the pantry at our workplace, I didn't intend for anyone to drink it, but I negligently created a situation where someone might reasonably drink a cup of bleach. Of course, as my lawyer listeners know, there's a whole bunch of elements for determining negligence, depending on where you are, who you are, your relationship. We're not going to go into those today, because they're not relevant to today's case, but maybe in the future we'll dig into that. In the meantime, all that the non-lawyers need to know is that a tort suit is a civil suit for an injury, physical or psychological, intended or not. So it stands to reason that Westboro Baptists get sued under tort law a lot, because their actions are very upsetting to people, but not necessarily illegal, especially since they're very good at complying with protest laws to the letter. Remember, they're a bunch of bigots, but they're a bunch of bigoted con law lawyers who really understand what they're up against. 
So people who feel that they've been injured by Westboro's actions, whether physically or emotionally, often turn to tort law as a way to seek restitution. It's the avenue that they have to be heard and potentially compensated for what they believe Westboro has done to them. And that was the case for Albert Snyder, which brings us to today's case, Snyder v. Phelps. Albert Snyder was the father of Lance Corporal Matthew Snyder, a Marine who was killed in action in Iraq in 2006 at just 20 years old. His grieving family held a funeral in his hometown of Westminster, Maryland, and guess who decided to show up? That's right, our buddies at Westboro Baptist Church, specifically Fred Phelps, two of his daughters, and four of his grandchildren. They showed up to the funeral with their trademark signs, including God Hates the USA, Thank God for Dead Soldiers, Priest Rape Boys, and a good old-fashioned You're Going to Hell. This episode made the news in a big way. This is the first time I actually remember hearing about Westboro Baptist Church, and I think I was maybe 18 at the time. So they had been around for quite a while, protesting and making a name for themselves, especially in Topeka, Kansas. But on a national scale, they were starting to hit the big time, big time, you know, in infamy, not in fame, perhaps, by doing things like protesting funerals like Matthew Snyder's. So while many of us were just starting to learn about what Westboro was all about, they had been doing this for a while. At this time, Maryland didn't have a funeral protest law like the states we discussed last week. Remember, this is around the time that all of these states were putting these in place, 2006. Maryland has one now, but it wasn't in effect yet in 2006 during Matthew Snyder's funeral. Still, the cops showed up, and they asked Westboro to stay about 50 feet away from the entrance to the church and to limit the time of their protest. And Westboro complied. They sang hymns, and they recited Bible verses before the funeral, but they didn't enter the church, they didn't yell or use profanity, except for on their signs, and they didn't incite any violence whatsoever, just their usual standing, sign-holding, and preaching to whoever would approach close to them. After the funeral, the procession, which included Albert Snyder, the deceased father, passed within a few hundred feet of the protesters. And Albert Snyder does remember seeing the tops of their signs, so he had a sense that something was going on, but not really experiencing the protest until he saw it on the news after the funeral. And Snyder, when he realized what had happened, was deeply troubled by the protest, and he filed a suit against Westboro Baptist for five state tort law claims. Defamation, which you all probably know, Publicity given to private life, intentional infliction of emotional distress, intrusion upon seclusion, which is a great rhyme, and civil conspiracy. These five torts are really good examples of what we just talked about, that tortious actions aren't actions that are in and of themselves a crime, like theft. They're actions that someone is able to sue another person over because they cause some sort of injury. Now, a few of these were thrown out initially because Snyder couldn't meet the elements of them, but the district court jury found for Snyder, so in his favor, on intrusion upon seclusion, civil conspiracy, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. Intrusion upon seclusion is basically invading the privacy of someone else in a moment that is intended to be private. And civil conspiracy is joining together with another person to deprive someone of their rights. This one is usually tacked on to another charge. It can't stand on its own because there has to be some other action that's happening for a conspiracy to happen between other people. Now, thinking about 
invading the privacy of someone, this intrusion upon seclusion and, and publicity given to public life charges, these kind of mirror our issues from last week. Even though those were constitutional cases, it's all about these private moments, right? The right to privacy is very important and losing your rights is a big deal. So we've got similar concepts, but different areas of the law. In this case, for tort, we've got one person suing another rather than the government determining if a civil right has been broken. The tort we're actually going to focus in on today is his third claim, intentional infliction of emotional distress. The Phelpses appealed the district court judgment, of course, and they won. So Snyder filed cert with the Supreme Court and was granted review, and this is the tort that the Supreme Court really focused in on when this eventually made it up to them. Now, I was so excited to find this case, because when I was taking torts class in school, we sort of treated intentional infliction of emotional distress, or IIED as we called it, as a catch-all on exams. So for our torts exams, and for most law school exams in general, you get this huge fact pattern with a bunch of different issues happening, and you have to spot all the issues in the facts presented and figure out what claims exist, are they going to be successful or not, you know, in this case for torts, uh, have the elements been met of the different torts, and tacking IIED onto the end of your torts answers was the easiest way to grab a few extra points in the end because somehow you could make it apply to everything. And I think you'll see why once we talk about the elements of it. But I do remember our professor saying that in an actual case, it's a tough one to win on because it's just hard to nail down the elements in court. So what are these elements that we're talking about? Well, for IIED, a plaintiff has to prove that the defendant intentionally or recklessly engaged in extreme and outrageous conduct that caused the plaintiff to suffer severe emotional distress. So breaking this down, we have four basic elements here. First, intentional or reckless. So this tort has to be on purpose or done so recklessly that a reasonable person could foresee the consequences. We're going to come back to a reasonable person again and again and again, and this is a big concept in the law. Because when we're judging you know, impressions and thoughts, not everybody is the same. So we have to have some sort of middle ground that we can work from. And this is the reasonable person. It's something that gets interpreted by the judge and the lawyers arguing the case. And we all kind of try to arrive at a decision based on what a reasonable person would do and think in the situation at hand. The second element is extreme or outrageous conduct. I mean, let's face it, some people are sensitive. I can be sensitive sometimes. So, for example, sticking your tongue out at someone you don't like won't qualify just because they react really strongly to it and they're haunted by it till the end of their days. It has to be an actual extreme or outrageous act that you're doing. Third and finally, it has to actually cause distress. So in this case, for example, Albert Snyder testified that he experienced sleeplessness, uh, heightened depression and anxiety, he would actually feel physically ill when he thought about the protest. And all of this goes towards showing his actual distress here. Some evidence he might present to show that could be expert testimony from a psychiatrist, or even testimony from relatives explaining changes in patterns of behavior after an outrageous um, conduct event. So you have to actually be able to show this in court. You know, if I show up with IIED against someone for something they did, and I am by all signs completely fine, they might be able to argue that they haven't actually caused me any distress. So even though 
they intentionally committed an outrageous act towards me, I'm okay. All the elements haven't been met. So here I am, all excited to explore the elements of IAED, really dig into some torts, when Justice Roberts completely changes the story on me. Because you see, the Supreme Court didn't actually explore the elements of IAED. They made this into another First Amendment case. Yes, that's right, we're talking about freedom of speech for a third time in three weeks. I promise we will not do it again next week. You see, even though the First Amendment, as we talked about, is intended to protect you from punishment by the government for your speech, it can also be used as a defense against tort suits. And it all hinges on whether speech is of public or private concern. As Justice Roberts pointed out, there's a very big difference between speech about private issues and public issues. Speech concerning public affairs, the court has written, is more than self-expression. It's the essence of self-government. So, for example, ranting to a crowd about how I hate, um, for example, a particular doctor is speech of a private concern. It's a personal beef between me and that doctor. The public doesn't gain anything from it, and he could definitely sue me for defamation. But what if he's running for office, and my beef with him has to do with something unethical in his medical practice that the public might really care about in deciding who gets to run their government? There's not a clear test, but that might be considered a matter of public concern, and that would be a good defense for me against any defamation suit. The point is that the government has an interest in making sure that fear of civil liability doesn't keep people from speaking on matters of public concern. Essentially, the government doesn't want you to feel that, yeah, I won't be thrown in jail for these beliefs, but everyone will sue me into oblivion, I'll lose all my money, and I'll have no way of defending myself. So when you're speaking on a matter of public concern, the First Amendment itself is actually a defense against tort suits. And that's exactly what happened here. The Supreme Court found that Westboro's First Amendment right to spread a message of public concern was a defense against a tort of IIED. And the court decided that Westboro's message was one of public concern because of a bunch of different factors, all of which weigh into the final decision and none of which are dispositive on their own. They considered the political nature of the message. Uh, they considered the fact that the message had to do with, at least in Westboro's eyes, the eternal salvation of the whole world. So it wasn't personal. It was literally about every single one of us. And something that they really looked into is Westboro's history of protesting. Because, as I said, this stretched long before this funeral. They started protesting in the 90s. And it seemed to take the same shape and form pretty much every time. They would hold their signs, they would have the same sort of messages, mostly focusing on homosexuality in the 2000s, taking a bent more towards uh, dead soldiers, God hates dead soldiers, thank God for 9-11, these kind of messages. So some of the signs could be interpreted as specifically aimed at the Snyders, these soldier-focused signs, but overall... The signs were spreading the same message that Westboro was aiming to tell the world about at every event. The message wasn't for or aimed at Albert Snyder, it was for all of us. Now, as some of you may be thinking, Albert Snyder very cleverly argued that Westboro was using what appeared to be a matter of public concern as a shield when their real aim was just to hurt people. Now, that's not okay. The First Amendment can't be used as a bludgeon to air out private concerns while pretending to talk about public ones. For example, let's say I tell everyone in town that person X had an abortion. 
I wrap it all up in the idea of pro-life views and my concerns for society and whether abortion should be legal. But really, it comes out that I don't actually care about that cause. I was just trying to get Person X fired so I could get their job. In that case, we'd go back to the elements of whatever tort Person X sues me under because I can't use the First Amendment as my defense anymore. But the court found that Westboro wasn't doing that. Like I said, they'd been at this for a while at this point. They also protested at three different locations on the same day, so Snyder's funeral was not the only place that they were. They were all over Maryland. And though they might enjoy the fact that Snyder was haunted by their words and that they added to the pain of his son's passing, that wasn't their primary intention. Westboro believes that God is killing American soldiers because of our acceptance of homosexuality. They believe it's a message the public needs to hear so that we can all repent. And reading some of the interviews with Megan Phelps Roper after her defection from the church, it sounds like from what she said that everyone in the church really truly not only believes this message, but believes that spreading it is an act of kindness because they're allowing people a chance to repent their sins and go before God, you know, without their sins. Now, of course, they believe in predestination. So sometimes if you repent, you're not getting anywhere anyways. But the point is that you might be among the saved if you're willing to repent your sins. This is what they truly, truly believe. And so in their eyes, they're spreading a message of public concern because they believe that they are saving the public. Now, just to really send the message home, the court reminded us that when the First Amendment and public speech is involved, the actual content of the public speech isn't part of the analysis. So Westboro didn't cause distress enough through actual interference with the funeral. They didn't enter the church, they didn't yell, they didn't scream, and Snyder didn't actually even see their signs on the day of. The only issue was with the content of their speech. If they had been standing there holding signs saying, God bless America, no distress would have been caused at all. So this charge is entirely based on the content of their message. And this is a problem because we don't want to regulate the content of people's speech. So for these reasons, the Supreme Court overturned the district court verdict and the Phelpses win again. Now, the Phelps family celebrated this victory and took it as a chance to ramp up their presence, both at protests and on the Internet. Curiously, the internet played a big part in this case behind the scenes, though it wasn't eventually used in the Supreme Court. Apparently, a few weeks after the funeral, a church member blogged about the protest on Westboro's website. And the blog post, unlike the protest itself, was much more specific to the Snyders. It used Bible quotes and verses to specifically talk about Matthew Snyder and how they believed his death was an act of God based on his and America's sins and how they thought it was something to celebrate. Just really horrible stuff. And Albert Snyder found this blog while he was Google searching his son's name. So the blog itself seems to be the actual cause of most of his distress. He really was hurt by these words and he dwelled on them a lot. This post was actually presented to the jury at the district court level, and they used it towards the elements of outrageous conduct and intentionality. But in his petition to the Supreme Court, Snyder didn't mention the blog post. His petition was just about the protesting. And the Phelpses actually brought this up in their response, that Snyder seemed to be saying in his Supreme Court petition that all of his distress was because of the picketing instead of the blog post that followed. Now, since Snyder didn't bring it up in his petition, the court didn't discuss it. Why he didn't bring it up, I guess we'll never know. Although the court does make an offhanded remark that internet postings raise distinct issues. 
So maybe Snyder just didn't want to muddy the waters, arguing about whether one can intentionally inflict distress on a single person over a broad forum like the internet. Or, you know, raise separate issues of libel, which is a whole different claim that he didn't bring to the court, and maybe he didn't want to confuse things. I guess we'll never know. The good news for the anti-Phelps crowd, after I've regaled you for two weeks with them winning over and over again in court, is that while they won this case, the same internet that led to Snyder's pain seems to be slowly breaking Westboro Baptist apart. So, like I talked about last week, it was the internet that led Megan Phelps Roper and her sister away from the church, and then their younger brother has actually since left as well. He even hosted a Reddit AMA talking about how he believes in love and tolerance now. And even Fred Phelps himself, the very founder of the church, was excommunicated before his death. And rumor says that it's because in his later years, he became friendly with the folks that owned the internet-famous Rainbow House, which is the site of an anti-bullying charity that's located right across from the Phelps compound and is painted with a bright, beautiful rainbow flag. You know, it's just rumors and his family denies it, but supposedly he leaned more into tolerance in his later years, and that is why he was actually kicked out of the church. Snyder, meanwhile, is just trying to move on from the trial although he's finding it difficult since the verdict arrived the day before the anniversary of his son's death, so it links the trial and the loss of his son forever. He was also ordered to pay the Phelps' legal fees after losing, which he says just added insult to injury. But to Snyder, it isn't really about the money, it's about hatred and trying to fight its influence. In a Time Magazine interview, he stated, I'm just very disappointed in America today. You've got countries that won't even let these people on their land. And in fact, Britain banned the Phelpses from entering the UK. And we allow them to desecrate a Marine's funeral. There's something very wrong. Definitely something we'll have to grapple with as we become more and more aware of hate groups and their speech in our country. How much do we value our constitutional freedoms against our need to be protected from just how horrible people can be when they're given free reign to be bad? And this leads us with eight minutes left in our 30, into the Church of Scientology, perhaps the best example of what happens when people are given free reign to be bad. I've been reading recently the biography of uh, Jenna Miscavige, and I think she has a second last name that I'm forgetting at the moment, which I will have to look up. She's actually the daughter of, um, not the daughter of the leader at the moment, but one of his sisters, I believe. Um, and she grew up in the church. She was raised in it, you know, from birth. She was raised actually at a Scientology kind of camp, um, called the ranch where she worked hard labor all day and she only went to a Scientology school and she eventually left the church. I've also been reading Leah Romini's book, which has been very popular and I'm hoping that everyone has read as well as Going Clear, which is an exploration of the history of the church and their misdeeds. And one thing that struck me while I was reading this is, why does it take people so long to leave? Why, how do people live in a church like this, which, in my opinion, and the opinion of many countries, is not a church, but a cult, and not get out? And of course, there are the normal answers of brainwashing and that being, you know, your group of people. A lot of young actors in Hollywood are drawn into the church because they're lonely, they're looking for work, they're struggling, and the church gives them stability and it gives them 
jobs. So it's easy to get drawn in and then not be able to find your way out. I understand the psychology of it. But the interesting thing about Scientology, perhaps more than any other cult, is that there's also money and legal issues involved. And I think that they have created this kind of unique horror uh, because the Church of Scientology, as many of you have probably read, has made a point out of using the courts to punish people. Largely people who are former members, but also people who criticize them, journalists, um, you know, anybody who speaks out against the church. Additionally, they have many of their members sign a, I think, a billion-year contract when they enter the higher levels of Scientology, like Sea Org. And although, as a contract lawyer, I can tell you that is not you know, going to be held up in a court of law, there's something that we see as very official about signing a contract. So a lot of times people can get other people to do and agree to things that a court of law would not enforce. If you brought that contract into court and said, you have to make this person do this, the court would decline to do it. But we have this concept that if we contract to something, we have to do it no matter what, and that we can you know, write our way around our rights. You know, to a certain extent, you can waive things, but there are many things that you cannot waive. So the, the Church of Scientology has done a very good job taking this kind of cultural misunderstanding of contracts and applying it to keeping people from leaving their religion. So there's this idea that they will own you for that much time and that leaving is just not really a choice you have. There's also uh, the idea that you have to pay them back. So part of that contract is that all the services that you get um, through the Church of Scientology, which we'll talk about next week because it looks like we're running out of time, are free when you're in Sea Org or the higher levels. Um, and all of these terms like Sea Org and stuff, I'll do a brief primer on next week. Um, but at those higher levels, you get to take all the classes and stuff for free. But it's in that contract that you sign that if you ever leave, you have to pay for all of them. They're all exorbitantly priced. And Leah Ramini, when she left the church, said that they claimed that she owed them just millions and millions of dollars. So there's a lot of aspects that they use to keep people in just through intimidation. So they don't even use the courts themselves. They use the concept of our legal system and the concepts of contract law to intimidate people into thinking that they have to stay and that they have no rights. Now, what we're going to talk about next week, although if you guys need a break from cults, let me know because we can put it off for a few weeks. I have way too many notes on this stuff. But what we'll talk about next week is how they actually use the courts themselves. Because not only do they use the idea of contracts and the idea of the courts to intimidate people, but they use the courts as kind of a weapon. So we're going to talk about something called malicious prosecution, which is the theme of our case next week which is where you prosecute someone not because you want to win on the merits of your case, but because going to court is expensive. Lawyers are expensive. Uh, there are filing fees. There's the time that you have to take off work. There's the cost to investigate things, the cost of ex expert witnesses who can be paid. It is a very expensive endeavor. And someone who gets sued over and over and over again, even if they win on every single case, is going to spend a good amount of money defending themselves. Church of Scientology has really picked up on this, and they have used this in astonishing ways. 
which we are going to talk about next week, because although I am halfway through my notes, I am at half an hour. So as always, if you've got cases you'd like to hear about, or just want to tell me this podcast is terrible, or guys, if you want to tell me that you need a break from the cult stuff, you can email me at towardsillustratedpodcast at gmail.com. A quick note on upload days. You may have noticed that this podcast has been going up on Wednesdays instead of Tuesdays, and this is going to be the case going forward. So for those of you who don't know me in person or just aren't around in Chicago and you know haven't had me bugging you to go, I'm actually in a comedy show at the moment that rehearses on Mondays and has shows on Tuesdays. So uploading on Tuesdays was getting nigh on impossible. So Wednesdays it is from here on out. Hope that everybody still tunes in on Wednesdays, even if it goes up at around midnight like it is today. Until next week, this has been Torts Illustrated. I'm your host, Marie, and I'm asking that when you kill all the lawyers, please spare me. I haven't signed any billion-year contract, so I'm not coming back when I go.